Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We're really excited today. We've got Will Idell with us. He's a former investigative journalist for the Sunday Times, specializing in undercover investigations. He's now a media consultant, but we're here to talk to him about his phenomenal first book, The Kamikaze Hunters, which looked at the end of the war in the Pacific, is a top 10 bestseller and is frankly brilliant. Will, hello. Good morning. Hi. How are you doing? Apart from being fed up with all things covid I am, but uh, that's why it's going to be great to talk about something a bit different. Absolutely. Let's just leave the virus behind and get straight on with it. So your book looks at the fleet air arm in the Pacific, uh, which I think a lot of people just assume that we weren't there and it was all an American naval thing. So we're going to correct that today and talk about everything that we did to contribute. Um, I guess let's start with the British naval aviation in the years leading up to the war. So people love the RAF, people can point at a Spitfire and a Hurricane and that, but what has the fleet air arm got and how does it compare? Well, I think certainly in the in the run-up to um, the war and in the early years of the war, um, the, the, the kind of requirements for, for a, a kind of naval carrier aircraft were, were pretty complex. Um and the fleet air arm they had, had a sort of they had jack of all trades, multi-role aircraft, but, but they, they they were sort of obsolete masters of none. They just didn't really fit, fit all the um, roles that were required. Um, they had primarily, I guess, the main one they had to start with was a fairy swordfish, which was nicknamed the string bag. It was kind of it was a biplane constructed from wood and rope and canvas, and it had a crew of three. And um, it had a top speed of 125 miles an hour, which I think the, the, the crews joked that that, um, that they only reached that if they were going downhill. You know, and um, and it was quite well known because obviously it achieved quite a lot of successes at, at, at Taranto uh, in November 1940 uh, when it helped kind of disable quite a lot of the, the Italian fleet, and also it helped sink the, the Bismarck. But out in the Pacific, it, it would be absolutely useless. Um, there was also a, a, an aircraft called the Blackburn Skewer, which was a, a two-seater a dive bomber uh, come fighter. And that was the, the Navy's first monoplane. Um, and that, that, had, that was quite well known as well, in a sense, because it shot down the first enemy aircraft of the entire war in, uh, in September 39. Mm. But as the war developed, it was outclassed against an enemy using you know, high-performance land fighters, um, which totally outclassed it, really. And then the final one was the Fairy Barracuda, which was a, a kind of British-designed torpedo-cum-dive bomber. Um, but that, frankly, it, well, one person said it sort of it, it was a it looked like looked like it'd been designed, uh, put together by a committee. Um, it had aerials and flaps and radar displays, and it kind of resembled a flying tele TV set. Really, it was, it was you know pretty shoddy. And I think what what the Admiralty realised belatedly is that um, to be successful, um, the, the, the carrier plane had to had to combine a number of quite important traits. Um, 
so it had to it had to be powerful and nimble. Um, obviously, it might need to either be dropping bombs or, or strafing. Um, it needed a reliable engine, of course, because it was spending so much time over the sea. Um, and of course, pilots had to control the aircraft at relatively low speeds when landing on the, the small confines of a flight deck, which I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of come to in a moment, because that, that was obviously such a, a specialised type of flying. Um, and of course, it, it needed to have a pretty strong fuselage. Not only did it need to have a decent um, undercarriage, because of course, you know, the rough and tumble of carrier flying, you needed to yeah. have an undercarriage. But also, it needed to have a, a, a strong fuselage to carry an arrestor hook, which was the the, the, the hook that, that was slung out from underneath the fuselage, which then would catch a wire across the deck when it came to land. Um, but, but finally, it had to be small enough to, to safely land and be stowed away up, up in the hangar within an aircraft carrier. So there were loads of di- there were loads of quite um, differing essential characteristics that a carrier fighter need uh, a carrier plane needed. Um, and actually, by 19, I think it was 19, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it around 1943, the fleet air arm um, had, it was operating 62 different types of aircraft, um, but because it was so desperate to try to actually kind of find a small group of aircraft that, that would meet all these requirements. That sounds like an absolute nightmare in terms of maintenance um, and crews that can like deal with all different kinds of aircraft as well it's not ideal at all is it no it's not ideal and i think it, there was a there was a um there was a sketch in in uh, the political score correspondent for a for flight magazine you know the specialist uh, aviation magazine he, mm-hmm. he wrote around the time as well he, he was listening to a debate in the house of lords uh, just on this particular subject again this was in the early 40s and, and, and he paraphrased a, f- a famous SAVE advertisement around the same time, which, um, which, and, and the, it ran, they don't know what they want and they won't be happy till they get it, you know, and it was kind of as simple as that because no one quite, really quite knew exactly what they want and how they get it. But, but they certainly began to look at, at potential, um, kind of substitutes, what was there before. So I suppose the one that might be the one that people have heard of is the sea fire, um, which, which was kind of the, the naval, I guess, brother of, of, or sister of, of the Spitfire. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it kind of had a top speed of 350 miles an hour. It was armed with a couple of 20 millimeter cannons and four uh, 303 machine guns. It certainly flying around in the air. It was, it was beautiful. It kind of had a lot of the characteristics of the, uh, of the Spitfire. But, um, it was just too elegant, really, for the rough and tumble of the carrier deck. Um, more sea fires uh, were, were written off in deck landing accidents than destroyed by the enemy. Um, and I think certainly, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think um, by, by, by the reality is, is that I think the, the fleet Aeron realised that they, they wanted the target of almost 2,000 aircraft by mid-1944, and they just wouldn't get alone by looking at British aviation. So they decided to turn to America. And that's really where uh, in terms of the aircraft needed for the British Pacific Fleet, that's really uh, where the kind of main role was. Um, so I think the main aircraft, the main um, model uh, that was used by the British Pacific Fleet in, in 1945 was the uh, Vaught-Chance Corsair, uh, the F4U Corsair, which, again, is an aircraft I'd not heard of before I started. Research. I'd heard of it, but I, I knew nothing about it. 
Um, but it was a beautiful aircraft. It was a, it was pulled along by a 2000 horsepower Pratt and Whitney double wasp engine. It was, it was the first aircraft to reach 400 miles an hour in level flight. It was a funny looking thing, actually. I said it was beautiful. You, it was kind of, it was kind of like a Marmite plane, really, because it had, it looked like a, an inverted seagull. It had these almost prehistoric wings. Um, and the reason they were built like that is because they had to, they had to, um, the aircraft had to house a, 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 a propeller, which had a circumference of over 13 foot, which is more than, I think, two and a half feet greater than the Spitfire, because it had such a powerful engine. But also it needed to have quite stubby, um, quite a stubby undercarriage to ensure that when it landed on an aircraft carrier, it wouldn't, it wouldn't sort of, uh, wouldn't be damaged. So the designers came up with this rather curious design, which is, you know, which led to it, um, it was, its nickname was the Bent Wing Bastard from Connecticut because Connecticut was one of the states where it was, um, where it was manufactured. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it was armed with, with six 0.5 inch Colt Browning machine guns. Um, and, uh, it could also carry a thousand pound bomb either underneath a starboard wing or, or, or one 500 pound bomb under each wing. Um, and the, the Japanese nicknamed it the Whistling Death because uh, and if you go onto if you go onto you know Google YouTube and you put in diving Corsair, it's quite phenomenal. You know the, the, the sound that was made. It wasn't. I don't know much about um, the Stuka dive more, but it, but it, it didn't have it didn't deliberately have a piece of equipment on it to make it kind of make a noise. It was just the, the noise it made as the as the the wind went through certain parts of the wing. Um, but it was terrifying, uh, and I think the the combination of the speed and the firepower. As well as this whistling noise and, and the actual look of it as well, made it a pretty terrifying aircraft and a very effective one as well. So we've got an aircraft. Yeah. How do our guys get to the Pacific? What's the story behind how the fleet air arm ends up deployed to that theatre of war? So during during certainly from in the early part of the war, uh, well from mid mid forty three onwards, three to 40, 44 and forty five. Uh, the main protagonists in the Pacific War had been obviously the Americans and the Japanese. But by mid for late 44, it was becoming very clear, um, that, that if, if, if the Churchill realised that if the, if the British wanted to kind of not just be sitting on the, on the sidelines, uh, in the final great, great kind of theatre of the war, which could obviously be in, in, in the Far East and Japan, then they, they needed to play a role. And the only way they could really play a role uh, was through their, their navy. Um, so, 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 kind of from mid, mid late nineteen forty four onwards, um, the carriers of the uh, of the Royal Navy began to make their way over to the Far East. Um, they, they sort of finished really everything they needed to do. I mean, the last major role that, they, that the carriers played uh, was in August nineteen forty four when they dive bombed the Turpits. Uh, they failed to, to sink the Turfits. It was yet another chapter in the long-running story of the, of the Turfits and the, <laughs> the British attempt to try to get rid of it. Of course, ironically, the, the competition between the RAF and the uh, Fleet Air on, much to many people's uh, whatever in the Fleet Air on, was event, as we know, it was eventually destroyed by um, by RAF Lancasters, wasn't it? But um, so, so after the uh, after the failed attempt by the Fleet Air on to destroy the Turfits in August '44, Operation Goodwood, it was called. Um, they made their way over uh, to the. Uh, eventually, they were going to make their way over to Australia. Um, quite what they do once they were they were there hadn't yet been decided. 
but it was clear that uh, Churchill was certainly pushing for them to play some sort of role. Um, and on the way, they stopped in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, and it was there uh, in January 1945 that they were asked to um, play a part in uh, attacking um, the oil refineries at Palembang, um, which is in uh, in Sumatra. Uh, and that was really a sort of, I, I guess the Americans were looking on closely to see how well they would do, um, because that would decide how, what confidence they had in having them alongside their great fleets when it, when it came to the actual, um, final sort of, um, you know, showdown against the Japanese in the Pacific. So yes, Operation Meridian mm. is January. How mm. does that go and what kind of impression do they make? The objective was, 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 as I say, was to attack actually two of the most important oil refineries in the Far East and put them out of action. Um, and it was a daytime attack, two daytimes attack, two daytime attacks. The, um, the, the, the oil refineries had been captured, um, from the, from the British by Japanese parachutes in February 42. Um, and, and the plants produced something like 90,000, barrels of crude oil a day. And that was enough to supply a, a damn good proportion of, of aviation fuel required by the Japanese for their for their war. So cutting off this supply would obviously dent that war effort. Um, at the very moment, let's not forget when when the Japanese were being squeezed right across the Far East. So the first attack um, was on January the twenty fourth, Meridian One. Um, uh, it was a mixture of. Uh, Avenger bombers. We haven't actually talked about the Avenger, but very quickly, the Avenger was a was was an American uh, dive bomber or glide bomber, which was far more effective than the uh, than the thing the British had. It was tough. Uh, it could carry a decent armament. It had a three man crew, uh, and by certainly by Meridian, um, all the dive bombers or most of the dive bombers were uh, were Avengers. And so Meridian 1 was a combination of Avengers and Corsairs and Hellcats. Hellcat, another fighter, American fighter aircraft. And they uh, launched a very audacious daytime attack, um, which went pretty well, although um, what they didn't realise is that the Japanese had, um, not only did they have uh, quite a number of fighters, there was a, there was a, a, a fighter training school in the area, um, but it was also... Uh, apart from Singapore aside, the oil refineries at Palembang were uh, the second most heavily defended uh, target in, in, in that part of the world. So the uh, the British got a very hot reception. Um, nevertheless, um, it was successful, um, and I think 13 airmen uh, were killed um, at the end of it. Uh, but by and large, um, certainly Admiral Vyan, who was the, uh, who, who was the commander in charge of the fleet, he was quite happy at the end of the day when, when that, uh, that operation had been completed. And then four days later, or five days later, Meridian 2, um, they repeated it all over again. And, um, uh, again, it was successful. This time round, however, um, much to their, uh, horror, um, balloons, uh, were, were raised, and these balloons, of course, were attached to steel cables, and these steel cables were responsible for downing a number of um, diving uh, bombers. Um, because even during daylight, if you're going down at 300 miles an hour, you know it's pretty hard because these steel cables are effectively uh, invisible. Um, so they just they go through the wings like a sort of hot knife through butter. Um, so that was that was uh, that was quite an eye opener as well. But again, it it it, it was successful. 
in as much that by the time they landed back on again, uh, this whole refinery was, was was kind of left with thick black smoke, and it had been uh, big parts that had been you know really well pounded. I think so. In your book, you follow a particular group, don't you? Before we get to them, can you just tell us kamikaze tactics? Why are the Japanese increasingly reliant on these at this point? Let's not forget what. The, the Japanese Air Force originally was, the pilots were some of the most highly skilled pilots in the world. But by for, mid-44, and certainly by 45, many, many of these pilots had been, had been killed. And, and those that were still pretty experienced tended to be used more as instructors. So the answer, they decided, was the kamikaze. And this was young Japanese pilots who, who deliberately dived their aircraft into ships as human bombs. And, and it was the last desperate throw of the dice, really. Um, uh, the, the, the Americans estimated that, that, that the chance of hitting a ship rose from 3% to 20% with one sortie for the kamikaze attack. So as one British admiral put it, they got more bang per plane. Um, and a, a British memo was circulated stating that the kamikaze was, was the most dangerous form of air attack so far developed. Um, and so they knew they had to really come up with some quite skillful ways of, of defeating them. And uh, most kamikaze, uh, young men, very young men, aged between 18 and 24, um, actually the youngest pilots were 17. And over the following months, hundreds of airmen joined what were called special attack units. Um, Many cherish a chance to, to sacrifice their lives, others not so much, but that they kind of volunteered out of honour. Um, and, and they had different tactics. They had different types of tactics depending on what was going on. So sometimes decoys were used to draw off the Allied fighter patrols uh, with the remainder of the incoming planes splitting up into small groups. And they'd, climb, they'd, they'd fly along at sea level and then they'd climb up at full power before carrying out steep dives out of the sun from around sort of 10,000 feet. Um, and others would feign torpedo attacks by approaching at sea level, only to pull up at the last minute to, to dive sharply. Um, and the sweet spot, I suppose, for, for, for a, in a battleship or a cruiser was a bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the carrier, the sweet spot was hitting the flight deck, either on the lift, because most flight decks had two lifts, one, one either end, um, or on the, where, where the island of the ship, which is kind of like the island, was, was, was on the starboard side. It was almost like the braves of the ship, where the bridge was and all the kind of communications and all that sort of thing. If, if, a, if a kamikaze could either drive, dive straight into that or, even better, dive down the funnel, then you'd know that, you know, two or three tonnes or whatever, five or six tonnes of, of, of aircraft with a couple of bombs on, fully loading the fuel with a decent amount of fuel, was going to go right down into the heart of the ship and could sink it. Um, so, so, so that they had different tactics. Um, but the suicide attacks were, were more profitable to the Japanese than non-suicide attacks by around, I think, an order of sort of ten times, like one report completed. So you can see why they, they kind of, uh, decided to, to resort to these, you know, what, what were extraordinarily desperate and uh, bizarre forms of, uh, of attack uh, in the eyes of the, of the Allied airmen and sailors. They just couldn't get it. It's just insanity, isn't it? So who are Wally Stradwick, Tommy Gunn and Don Cameron? Let's start with, let's start with Don Cameron because he mm-hmm. gives a, there's always this rather lovely idea of a, 
you know, sort of stiff upper lip, sort of Royal Naval Airmen and all rather like. One has to remember that most of the guys who served in the in the uh, fleet air arm, it's it, it certainly by the time it came, like 89% of them were volunteers. They were part of the wavy navy, as it was known, right? Because the stripes they wore on their uniform, the two stripes on their cuffs, they weren't they weren't straight laced, as they weren't they were wavy, which showed that they were they were hostilities only airmen. And so, you know, although they were obviously quite proud to fly the fleet air arm. Um, most of them didn't have a great deal of, you know, after the war, they would go back to their, their daytime jobs. So in a sense, they were in it for the fun as well. It was also very highly pressurised. So Don Cameron was a no-nonsense, hard-drinking uh, New Zealander. And he uh, was a Corso pilot in 1833 squadron, which was one of the squadrons on, on Illustrious, which was on the aircraft carriers. And he, there was a sort of rather... Um, a graphic incident where after Illustrious had been uh, had su- successfully shot down a kamikaze, which was about to hit the, uh, I think it might have even hit the, it, it just brushed the side of the deck, I think, but it blew up, and, and bits of the plane flew onto the onto the deck, including Don Cameron noticed a flying helmet with a rising sun painted on the top, and when he picked up the flying helmet from the deck, he was surprised to see a skull about the size of an asteroid with little red veins forming a mosaic on the bone. Very graphic, I'm afraid, but war is, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. um, and after supper, a couple of days later, uh, I, I, I think Cameron and another of the other fighter boys had gathered for, for, for a bit of a piss up uh, in, in, in one of their sort of small, tiny cabins in, in, in the kind of hull of, 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 of the ship. And in the gloomy light with the condensation dripping from the pipes and they were, you know, drinking bottles of gin and vodka and whiskey, someone pulled out a, an eyeball, um, uh, looking like a, a tadpole, which they'd found on the flight deck and they dropped it into the bottom of the vodka bottle. Um, but not to be outdone, Cameron rose to his feet, he staggered off to his cabin and he came back with his piece of skull, which they took great delight in stubbing cigarettes. Now, now in a sense, it sounds rather, I mean, it is, you know, disregard for the Japanese. And looking through our prediction of 2020, it's appalling. But it was a sort of prevailing attitude of many of the guys at the time. Mm-hmm. And some of them had a, had, a, had a grudging respect for the skill and the, the kamikaze pilot and, and, you know, pulling off a technically difficult piece of flying. But, I mean, generally, they were risking their lives on a daily basis and against an enemy they couldn't really understand. It's, um, like it's, it's not playing by the rules, is it? kamikaze sort of philosophy no it, it, it's not and also what one gunner on on formidable another aircraft carrier he, he said that um y- you felt like they're aiming for you personally yeah you know, it, it kind of like and, and, and the kamikaze uh pilot didn't discriminate um you know whether or not you were the captain of the ship or you were the boy sailor um, you were still all the target for him, you know. So it was it was quite a personal form of warfare. It was a sort of 360-degree warfare. You know, you, you didn't know where the attack was coming from. So anyway, so, so can, you can kind of see why Cameron um, was like this. And then on VE Day, I mean, let's not forget, right, that the, and I know we're jumping forward slightly, but, but, yeah. but on, you know, in early April, right, and, and then in May, rather, in sort of whenever VE Day was, on 8th of May, VE Day, 1945, when everyone here in the UK was celebrating, boozing, drinking, having fun, out in the Pacific, 6,000 miles away, you know, they were thick in, in, in the, in the middle of kamikaze attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, like, on VE days, I think they did manage to have a big old piss-up and, and dear old Don Cameron, you know, ended up having to vomit an empty shell case in the wardroom because he had a bit too much to drink. Good and, man. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> but but um, but he he actually had a... So he was quite experienced. I mean, he, he had been... He had, he'd seen action over <clears throat> over Italy in September 43, um, flying CFARs back then. Um, and... Uh, obviously, because because a number of British carriers were covering the Allied invasion uh, of uh, the, the troops of Salona off Sicily, and he was shot down in his sea fight, and he ditched on the beach. Um, a, a chunk of his arm had been shot away by a shell, and he was captured by the by the um, German army. And and a few days later, um, being carried up in a in the back of a in a, peer, in a um, truck on the way to the POW camp, he leapt out of the back of the of the truck and, and made a run for it. And he managed to get back across uh, uh, enemy lines helped by, by, helped by, um, by partisans. And, and actually he was one of the few who then was shot down again. He was making a low-level attack in, in May 1945 on one of the islands near Japan. Uh, he saw his wingman get shot down on the, over the airfield. And with his blood up, he returned alone. He made three passes over, over low-level passes, which I'm sure will come on to you later. Which you just didn't do that. The Japanese got the bead on you. Uh, they were very effective at creating things called flat tunnels, where you know they, they that you made one or maybe at the most two passes, but you never made three. Not surprisingly, he was shot down uh, and he was captured. Um, and he was taken to Formosa, now Taiwan, where he remembers being you know shoved in a cage and uh, sort of local kids were, were sort of shoving bamboo sticks in his ribs and, and in his rectum and stuff. It was pretty unpleasant. Mm. Anyway, to cut long story short, he survived that and he was liberated at the end of the world. But he was a good example of a really tough cookie, right? Uh, really mm. tough New Zealander. Tommy Gunn, um, so, so Palembang, we talked about just now, Meridian 2. Um, uh, uh, Tommy Gunn was, was one of a, was one of three, um, three man crew in an Avenger. He was a 21 year old. He'd grown up in a little Norfolk village, um, and his, his colleagues used to, used to tease him about his accent and, and Norfolk being a bit of a backwater, um, which, you know, of course, so much has changed. And, um, <laughs> and he was a very quiet, he was a quiet little man. And he, but Sorry, that sounds really patched He He was a, a quiet boy, right? But he, but no one had an unkind word for him. He was good at his job. He was, he was a, um, he was an observer uh, in the event, which meant he sort of sat in the middle of it under kind of like canopy. And um, anyway, he uh, was was horribly injured uh, d- during the during the operation, and Ian Patterson, a wonderful Scotsman, who was the pilot, and Bob Taylor, who was the air gunner, uh, between them they managed to uh, uh, get the aircraft back to the fleet, even though it was it was riddled with with, with bullets. Gun was was horribly injured, uh, a number of bullets from a number of passes from Japanese uh, fighters thudded into his body. Um, and Patterson managed to land his, his, his aircraft um, on the sea, and they all managed to get out. Um, but, but when they were picked up by a, a destroyer a few minutes later, sadly, Tommy Gunn had died. Um, and actually, the destroyer that picked up Tommy Gunn was the Whelp. Um, and, and the Whelp, I, I suppose, is most famous because um, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the young... Um, Officers who was on it was the future chief of Edinburgh. That's um, right. Yep, Prince Philip. Prince Philip. Yeah. So, um, uh, and I suppose the reason I included 
Tommy Gunn's story in, in the book is because um, it, it was extraordinarily moving. Um, the, the way the way Ian and Ian Patterson and, and Bob Taylor tried to keep him alive on the way back and then and then in the water and, and actually um, it, 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 it just shows as well I, I think I think Ian Patterson said uh, as they buried him at sea and his his body slipped into the deep they would Ian and 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 and, and um, and Bob were just there in confusion and anger and despair. You know, they didn't didn't quite know what to think or do. And and, and it was just like I think terribly moving. He was just a, an, it was just an example of a kind of something that's very personal that that could happen to anyone. Um, and then Wally Stragler. Wally, I guess, is someone who, for me personally, was uh, perhaps might have been most attached to in the in the book. Um, uh, well, certainly of those who who kind of didn't make it. Um, very briefly, the whole the whole genesis for this book, Alex, is because I was um, I was on a I was in a village. I was walking um, across a village green of a, a very sort of summary kind of all creatures great and small style village fate um, <laughs> back in 2010 or something in Kent. And this guy this this guy came up to me and he didn't seem particularly old, you know. And he had and I was chatting away to him. Didn't mention the war or anything, but he had a cap on which said HMS Formidable. And he walked off, and I said to my my who would then be my believe my future father-in-law. I said I said I said um who's that? And he said oh, he's Keith Quilter. And I said well um I said what's HMS Formidable? He said well, I'm not sure. I said he said well I know that he um he fought against the Kamikazes in in the Second World War. And I said well he couldn't have done because he's British and it was only the Americans who were against the Kamikazes. And of course I did a bit more digging. Little did I realise that obviously we had a huge fleet out there. Mm. Uh, Keith was a course air pilot for 1842 squadron and Keith and Wally um, they uh, they both trained uh, together out in the States like like almost half of all the British airmen who fought in the British Pacific Fleet many of them trained in America uh, because obviously you were away from you were away from the uh, from, from the front line so to speak with the British skies where you could be attacked the weather was very good and of course, by 1942-43, um, they were beginning to train British airmen on American planes, and there's no better way to do, no better place to do it than over in the states. So Keith and Wally uh, spent got almost 18 months out in the states, um, first near Detroit and then down in Pensacola in, in Florida. You know, it was it was another world, Alex. It, it, imagine being in 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 war torn, monotone. Ration hit Britain, blackout. Mm. Okay, uh, and then you take a a super quick liner, or you take a a troop carrier over to the states, and suddenly uh, everything's life is in technicolor. There is yeah. no rationing. I mean, there was a bit of rationing later on. You know, everything like steak, eggs, um, Coca Cola, um, kind of big big cars everywhere. Like like you know, nothing is denied. Um, uh, and so the guys had an amazing time out there. I mean, everyone talks about the, the the Americans coming over here with their chewing gum and stockings, and you know that's something. But my God, the British going the other way, um, you know, because the a lot of the the American girls here were guys with really you know really nice voices, and they were very well behaved, and they this that and the other, and and certainly Wally and Keith and many others had great fun with American girlfriends and that sort of thing. So Wally and Keith trained together. They came back together. Uh, they then um, they then shared a cabin, and um, 
they made their way out to uh, the Far East. And I guess we'll come on to that in a minute. But to cut a long story short, Wally was um, was the first British airman to be shot down over mainland Japan. He was he was making a low level um, strafing run over an airfield uh, with three other corsairs, including Keith Quilter. He was in his he was in another one, and they were 300 miles an hour uh, going over the airfield. And, and Keith looked across and he just saw Wally's, uh, Corsair begin to dip, begin to dip, begin to, and then it just went straight into the runway in a great ball of flames. Um, and, and perhaps the most moving thing, I guess, is that when, so when Keith landed back on, um, uh, formidable, he went back to his cabin that he shared with Wally. And of course, you know, they had a bunk bed and, and there was Wally's empty bed and, and he began to go through all his personal belongings because he needed to send them back to his his mother back in Clapham. Um, Wally was one of three. He had an older brother who was a who I think was out in the far, was out in Burma or somewhere, and he obviously had a younger sister. But his his mother absolutely dated on him. She was uh, you know he was he was the apple of her eye. So Keith knew he would have to he would have to have to send all these things back. And Keith knew that Wally had kept a, a diary, but he obviously didn't really pry and didn't really, you know, kind of ask him too much. But he found this diary, I, I think, in Wally's desk drawer within the cabin in Formidable. And, and, and you know, he, he, he clearly decided to have a little look through it. And he, his final diary entry, just four days before he killed, was, was extraordinarily poignant. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've got, I've got it here. Well, not it. I've got a couple of it. I don't even want me to read you his final, course, his yeah. final excerpt. Um, so, so this is Wally about, I think, I think about, as I say, about three or four days before July the 18th, 1945. And he says, I don't know if it is a particular fault of this ARM or not, but we've been on this ship so long with long periods between ops that I feel the full twitch over this coming do. The whole thing hinges on strafing. God knows I'm just as scared as anybody flying on any op. But that disappears once the fun starts. However, I like the idea of fighting with brains and skill. Air-to-air fighting is the ideal. You have to use both whether the odds are for or against you. Strafing, on the other hand, in its present form of diving over defended airfields, is another matter. My argument is that you can use your brains and skill in choosing, executing the approach, attack and getaway, but no matter how no matter how well you are acquainted with the anti-aircraft defences and their positions, at the vital moment when you're down over the target, in full view of the defenders, I maintain that the odds are pretty high that some, maybe only one gunner, has a near enough no deflection shot on you. Hence, the only time that matters, your life depends to a very great extent on absolute luck. All that comprises the one fact that gives us the jolly old twinge of twitch. However, we shall force on. It's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's terrific, isn't it? Because without making it sound trite, it's sort of, you know, you could, I'm saying he forced all his death, of course he didn't, but, you know, the, these daylight attacks in the last few weeks, and I'm, I guess I'll come on to in a moment, were, were, were really, you know, it, there, was, there, was, there was really no air-to-air fighting. It was all about daytime, low-level ground strafing. And it, it was extraordinarily dangerous. And actually, in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really make much difference. So, um, and, and Keith is still alive. He, he lives five minutes from me. He's 98. He's in great form. Um, and, and when he, 
Keith went home and he sat on that diary for seven years because he couldn't bring it himself to take it back to Wally's mother. He just couldn't because he knew it would it would just kill her if she saw it. Mm. And then when I was researching the book, um, Keith and I had become really good mates by then. When I was researching the book, um, three reasons I won't bore you with. Um, Wally's niece got in touch, grand niece got in touch, the granddaughter of her of his brother, and it so happened that I met her, and it so happened that the Keith had the last diary of a series of four others that Wally had kept throughout the war from when he was 16 at the beginning, 17. And so Keith was able to reunite the diary with the family. Um, and obviously, although his mother had long since died, his sister Sheila was still alive. And so in a sense, it, the circle was complete. And, and the burden that was then lifted off Keith's shoulders, mm. phenomenal, because he felt so guilty for all these years that he kept on to this to this diary, even though his motivations were fully understandable because he didn't want to hurt Wally's mother, you know, so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about those last few weeks. Let's mm. talk about Task Force 37. So, so, so I guess very, very quickly before then, the the, the um, so British Pacific Fleet made its way down after uh, Meridian One or Two, which which were you know which had proved to the Americans that the that the Brits Brits could could, could do their job. They made their way to um, um, to Australia, and then in Australia they um, the, the fleet gathered, uh, and it was I mean it was the, the distances were huge in 1945 and early 1940 after Meridian One and Two. The attack on uh, Palembang, the, um, the, the the British Pacific Fleet had proved to the Americans that it was it was capable of operating effectively. Um, so the uh, four carriers made their way to uh, Sydney to join uh, the American fleet, and um, they then sailed north. For the first time, I think both the crews and, and the ships began to realise the huge scale of the Pacific because they'd been nothing, they'd been used to nothing like this before. I mean, to give you an idea. Um, the, the distances were huge. The front line was 4,000 miles away from Sydney, so it was like having the fleet based in Alexandria in North Africa with the advanced ang- anchorages in Gibraltar and the front line on the North American coast. It's a really good way to look at it, isn't it, to try and gauge the scale of the Pacific? Right. I mean, it, it, it's huge. And, and also, you've got to remember that the 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 the, the, four, the spearhead of the, of the Pacific Fleet, the, the four or five aircraft carriers, were obviously supported by uh, 
a battleship, King George V, and uh, cruisers and destroyers and that sort of thing. But they had to be replenished regularly by something called the fleet train, which was an extraordinary sort of, it was remarkable they managed to, of logistics, extraordinary, they managed to get it done because over the next however many months, sort of between what, sort of March, April, right through to July, August, they managed to replenish the, um, uh, the, the front line fleet by, uh, by, by, by kind of, by, by this, um, this train of, um, of, of smaller ships, you know, go, going in convoy up and down from Sydney all the way up to, um, off the coast of, um, Japan. And it was very, very hot. So as they crossed the equator, life on board was, was, you know, men nicknamed the carriers steel coffins because they, they radiated the tropical heat. Um, in certain spaces, temperatures could reach like 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, you know, the water from the cold taps was, 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 was so hot you couldn't even put your, your hand underneath. There was no fresh food and they had tin food. Um, and the most popular meal was something called, um, what was corned beef and tin tomatoes that they nicknamed train smash because of what it looked like. Um, yeah, it's pretty horrific sounding, isn't it? <laughs> I think it sounds quite good. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, so, so, so they reached, um, Okinawa and, and the reason they were up there is because, uh, Oper- o- Operation Iceberg was the Allied code name given for the invasion and capture of Okinawa, which, you know, clearly we've all heard of Okinawa. It was the, the, the massively strategically crucial island, 350 miles, uh, southwest from the home islands of Japan, which the Americans knew that they had to catch before they could commence with the planned invasion of Japan. Um, and they expected the Japanese to fight to the death. I mean, Okinawa was defended by 100,000 troops, and it was really the last line of defense. Um, and, and, and second only to D-Day, Okinawa would be the greatest amphibious assault of the Second World War. Mm. Um, but the Americans were worried about the, the, that they'd be attacked by kamikaze, so they asked the British Pacific Fleet to carry out uh, a crucial role, which was to knock out a key, a chain of uh, of airfields on a chain of islands which ran like stepping stones from Taiwan or Formosa as it was known then up to Okinawa uh, and that's what the British Pacific Fleet were asked to do. So on April the 1st Easter Sunday the Americans um, landed in Okinawa and uh, 300 or 200 miles to the southwest the British started launching uh, a, a, um, fighters and bombers to attack the, the airfields on these little islands but about 10 to 7 uh, all hell broke loose. The British radar picked up a formation of 20 aircraft in the west, uh, and the fleet went into a code red and, and braced itself for a kamikaze attack. And imagine that, you know, the, the, the radar room in the islands, the teams would be we, would be concentrating, watching the attack develop, plotting the incoming aircraft. You know, the ship's guns opened up with a, with a thunderous roar, and uh, and the outside and, and the, the sky was filled with with puffs, puffs of black smoke and. And the maximum range of the ship's guns was about 11 miles, uh, and they could send out shells at something like 2,000 feet a, a second. Um, but, 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 but they only had a small window of time to do that. And once they, if they didn't shoot them down and the kamikazes broke through, then really the only final line of defense was the ship's fighters. Um, and, and one of the ships, uh, one of the fighters broke through, one of the kamikazes broke through, and um, it, it hit into Fatigable, which was the name of one of the aircraft carriers. Um, and actually, although the damage was pretty, appeared to be pretty serious at the time, the, um, British, uh, aircraft carriers had steel decks. They, they, they had arm, steel armor plating, I think about four inches thick. Mm. Um, and unlike the wooden carriers, uh, unlike the American carriers that were made of wood, 
uh, this meant that the actual damage overall was far less serious than it might have been. So within about an hour, uh, they were sweeping uh, the remains of this uh, kamikaze off the deck. Uh, they'd used quick-drying cement to um, cover the hole, uh, and they were landing aircraft back on again. What's that fantastic quote from an American about the difference? Yeah, so the Americans were were really impressed by by the, the apparent ease at which the um at which the armored carriers of the British <laughs> and, and was the, according to one visiting US liaison officer, yeah, the sort of famous quote said, "When a kamikaze hits a US carrier, it means six months repair at Pearl, as in Pearl Harbor. When a kamikaze hits a limey carrier, it's just a case of sweepers, manual brooms." I love it. It's so British. Yes, it is rather, isn't it? And I, yeah. rather, I rather think I rather think the, the, the quick drying cement as well is quite, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, come on, chaps, let's just here we are. <laughs> just... Um, but also, the, 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 there was some gallows humour, right? Because, um, I mean, I mean, the squadron diary of, of, of eight nine four squadron, which was the indefatigable squadron of sea fires. Uh, the, the um, it's lovely. This was obviously written on the day or the day after. And they said, um, they said, April the 1st, all fools day, and did we buy it? Early in the morning, the Japs attacked with a suicide, their first reaction, diving from 2,000 feet. It hit the bottom of the island during no mean rate of knots. Flat! <laughs> anyway. Oh, it's just, <laughs> it is gallows humour, but you had to be there, I think. To understand. You had to be there, and, 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 and I think that's the way they got through it, because, you know, again, I mean, it was uh, May the 4th, May, May the 9th, more kamikaze attacks, uh, formidable, one, one of the key carriers, that was hit, and it looked from the other carriers and the other ships around the table, a great pool of smoke went up, a great pool of steam went up, and it looked, for, for, for all money, it looked like the thing was going to sink. And um, and Anthony Kimmons was a film director, and he he joined the Navy at the outbreak of war, and he was now the fleet's press liaison officer. Although mm. actually he didn't do a great deal, a great great job, because no one back in the UK really was you know, bugger all going on in the British um, press about it. But anyway, he, he was he was watching from another carrier alongside Formidable, and, and it was a grim sight. And and he and he, he wrote something which is rather which I'll read out because it's quite uh, if we've got time because it's quite um. Uh, he said, we were just getting our breath back when a voice said beside me, God, look at for me. It was a ghastly sight. All you could see was a bare outline of a hull and rising above it from stem to stern an enormous pool of black smoke, belching furiously as huge red tongues of flame shot upwards every time something else caught fire. And right amidships, a, gri- a gigantic white fountain as high-pressure steam screamed into the sky. But the thing that almost took one's breath away was the fact that something else was screaming upwards too. More kamikazes were diving to attack, and to our amazement, traces from Formi were racing up to meet them. It did not look possible that anyone could be alive in that inferno, and yet, somehow or other, guns, crews, scorched, and with their throats clogged, were still sticking to their job. Whether she was hit again or not, we couldn't see. There was too much smoke and flame already. But she held on. Her engines were still heaving over. Boilers had been put out of action. But those men down in the boiler and engine rooms were determined that she should keep her fleet pace within the fleet. Just so it was, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty hairy stuff. Um, so, so after after the Operation Iceberg, um, which which was ultimately successful, the the Americans, I think Nimitz had said said that the that the, the British had helped helped keep the Jap suiciders off our backs was his quote, and they took their place alongside the American 
um, third fleet was it now, or was it rather confusingly changed from the fifth fleet to the third fleet, even though it was the same group of ships. Um, they took their place alongside the Americans for the for the final um, kind of operations over mainland Japan, uh, the main island of Japan, in, in July and August 45. And don't forget, of course, that everyone thought that the invasion of Japan was still going to take place in the autumn of, of 1945. So the, the fleet was really tasked with with kind of softening up um, mainland Japan, really through attacking airfields uh, and kind of other small targets um, by by low-level um, daylight raids. And the aircraft would would the, the, the aircraft would take off uh, from the from from the from the um, carriers positioned a few hundred miles off the uh, off the east coast of Japan, and then they would carry their raids, and then they would come back. And it was. You've got to imagine, I mean, everyone thought that the Japanese had saved up to 10,000 kamikazes for the final great battle over in Japan. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, there was a sense of complete fear and foreboding for these young British airmen who were now flying right over the, the mainland Japan itself. Um, you know, and I think there were only eight days of operations, but within that time, uh, you know, a number of them had a number of paranoids. Keith Quilter uh, on the 18th of July, just eight days after Wally had been shot down. Keith was um, strafing a, a, a destroyer on the edge of a harbour when he was shot down. He managed to land his aircraft less than a mile from the shore and he jumped in his dinghy and started paddling away towards the um, ocean, thinking that this is it. Um, and then he saw a black sort of sinister object on the water coming in towards him and he assumed that it was a Japanese submarine. Uh, and to his great delight, it was, uh, it was actually an American submarine um, that had, had been radioed up by one of the other um, aircraft and said, look, you need to go in and pick this boat up. And um, the first thing, w- when they got to him uh, and they heard him speak, the first thing they said was, oh, God, we've got ourselves a goddamn limey, you know. But um, they picked him up anyway. Um, uh, and so these operations went right on up until August the 15th, 1945. And in fact, the last dogfight of the of the war involved uh, a young sea fire pilot called Fred Hockley, who was with our 894 squadron of Indefatigable. Um, he was shot down over Tokyo Bay. Uh, he landed, in fact, this was after the surrender, but very tragically, he was, um, he was forced to dig his own grave and then he was, um, then he was shot. Oh, it's just awful, isn't it? Speaking of, considering this is not a campaign that we associate with the Royal Navy as such, as you say, there's bugger all coming out in the press at home about this involvement. How significant are the casualties? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the casualties are, are, are a pinprick, right? So, mm. so uh, I think it's something like just 105 airmen from the BPF were killed in enemy action across like 36 strike days. And that, that's 20% of, of all fleet air on crew killed worldwide in, in 1945. Um, the majority of those were, were killed by heavy anti-aircraft fire as they carried out their, 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 their strafing ones um, over Japan. In terms of um, ship's company, I, I can't remember the top of my head, but, but it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was under 100. So, so the grand scheme of things, the casualty figures were, were minute, of course. Um, but I think, in terms of a kind of legacy, I suppose, um, it, at times the, the, the fleet was a bit of a ragtag affair. I think they, the Americans had mastered the art of Pacific operations, right? They had, they had aircraft carriers that 
were designed for the Pacific, um, whereas ours weren't. Um, nevertheless, certainly operational effort-wise, certainly by the Corsairs and the Hellcats and the Avengers, we were um, we were absolutely kind of you know plugging away up there with the Americans in terms of the operational effort. And so I think in terms of the legacy, there's no doubt that we could be proud of the role that certainly the airmen played, um, you know, over the Pacific in those in those last few months of the war. And don't forget as well, Alex, that at the end of the war, mm. uh, the, the carriers helped repatriate more than like 24,000 POWs from Japan. So the the vast aircraft um, hang, the vast hangars within the holes of the uh, of the carriers, uh, yeah. the aircraft were removed. Um, they were replaced with hundreds of beds. Nursing staff were taken on board, and they became sort of humanitarian ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and actually, I've, I haven't got it with me, but there's a terribly moving account of uh, of a humanitarian humanitarian drop that was made by a number of aircraft from the British Pacific Fleet over a POW camp in on mainland Japan just after the surrender. And they, and they, and they wrote a letter which made its way back to the fleet. And, and the guys on the ground said, we, we've been waiting for three years for the Royal Navy to turn up. We knew you wouldn't let us down. And you should have, they dropped things like, um, they, they dropped obviously first aid packages and stuff, but they also dropped things like, um, uh, you know, food and tins of things. And the guy said, you should have seen the men stuffing their mouth, mouths with peaches and cheese and nattering to one another. They hadn't, you know, they hadn't been this happy for months, for years on end. So, there was a real sort of feeling that um, uh, I think if the BPF hadn't been there, then they wouldn't have been able to carry out that role either, that humanitarian role. Will, thank you so much for coming on to give us an overview, a really comprehensive overview of kamikaze hunters and a much forgotten aspect of the Royal Navy in the Second World War. I think it's fantastic. Alex, thank you very much for having me. Join us tomorrow when Emma Southern is back. Woohoo! So Emma has just released her new book about Rome and murder and Romans doing murder and what it meant culturally and how they got away with it. Uh, it's bonkers. And we've taken not the most obvious cases she's talked about in the book, but some of the more amusing uh, esoteric ones. And we talked about those with her. So join us for that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms so you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time one particularly great thing about it is that we have organized everything into categories so if you just want to listen to all of our world war ii shows you can do so or there's ancient history or there's tv tie-ins if you just have a hankering for famous people so you can select what interests you the most and listen to it in one go so do go over there and subscribe don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.